Welcome to the Pentagon Labyrinth, the podcast of the Center for Defense Information, brought to you by the Strauss Military Reform Project at the Project on Government Oversight. I'm going to warn everyone right off the bat that this is not a feel-good story. We're going to talk today about the tragic case of Navy Lieutenant Wes Van Dorn, a 29-year-old Naval Academy graduate who died when the MH-53 Echo helicopter he was piloting crashed off the coast of Virginia in January 2014. He left behind his wife Nicole and their two young sons. This case is at the center of a new documentary, Who Killed Lieutenant Van Dorn? A team from the UC Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism spent years digging into the story and discovered that this crash was hardly an isolated incident. Several institutional factors created the circumstances that led to it. The proximate cause of the crash was faulty wiring that sparked a fire. The wiring on the aircraft was known to be a hazard for years, and some efforts had been made to replace it throughout the fleet, but the job was never finished. Also, many of the 53 series of helicopters have been flying well past their planned service life. The main mission of the Navy's MH-53 helicopters is to pull a minesweeping sled through the water that can detect or trigger submerged anti-ship mines. Navy leaders had sought for years to find an adequate replacement for this method to include smaller models that can be pulled by the less powerful MH-60 helicopters and a countermine module for the troubled littoral combat ship. As is inevitable with the Pentagon's weapons programs, the desire to build the most highly engineered product imaginable for every mission meant the programs to replace the MH-53's capabilities were both over budget and behind schedule. This created a perfect storm. The cost increases ate into the available funds for maintenance efforts, and the delays forced the Navy to keep the MH-53's flying longer than intended with the inevitable degradation of the fleet. Now. I usually talk about these issues in more or less an abstract, kind of high-level manner in terms of budgets and programs at the Pentagon and Capitol Hill level. It is important to remind ourselves that these high-level issues have a direct impact on real people. And that is the most compelling part about this documentary. The producers have done a masterful job of presenting the story of Wes Van Dorn within the larger context of the military-industrial-congressional complex. I spoke to both Nicole Van Dorn, Wes's widow, and the film's executive producer, Zach Stauffer, about this case and what the two of them, with the assistance of a larger team, were able to uncover. He was an awe-striking blend um, of humility, gentle strength, um, raw physical power, and purposeful moral courage. Um, the way he walked through the world it just made people smile. Um, he was just fearlessly vulnerable and never uh, met a stranger. <clears throat> he, the world was drawn to him and he was drawn to the world. He was magnetic, just his presence. Um, but he lived his life with an abiding sense of duty. Um, he had been, felt like he'd been given so much and had been so blessed by a loving family and a good upbringing, um, that he felt a duty, like an inner drive to give back to the world, to make the world a better and happier place. Um, so he, he used his 
God-given gifts, um, his magnetism, by embracing it daily and sharing it with everyone around him. Um, I mean, a small example, a small story of that, I guess. Um, even when he was dying, when he was on the rescue helicopter after they'd pulled him from the water, um, <laughs> he was, you know, he was hypothermic. He had, you know, multiple amputations, um, third-degree burns, and clearly the the medical team in the helicopter was was racing and were he could and he could see the the stress on the, their face and their concern for him. Um, and one of the nurses from the flight came and found me after Wes passed away. And she said that she was just so taken by my husband because in that moment, as he was dying and as they were trying to keep him, stabilize his injuries and keep him awake, uh, he, he said, um, you better strap me down because when we get to the hospital, I'm pushing you down and I'm running in. Um, he didn't have a foot. So <laughs> in this moment of uh, extreme stress for everyone, extreme fear, he still just wanted to bring people up. Can you describe that day, what that day was like from your perspective? Oh, 4 a.m. When Wes, when Wes rolled out of bed, well, he always does. He's sweet, kissed me goodbye, and went and hugged both, both the kids. Our, our youngest was 14 months at the time. Um, so Wes used to just love to pick him up and snuggle him before he went to work. Um, the, the day before, the helicopters had frozen on the flight line. Um, so he was definitely a little bit nervous about going into work, and he I don't think he expected that he would actually fly. Um, so they canceled the whole flight schedule the day before. Um, anyways, he, he kissed me goodbye, and he said, I'll probably be home early because, you know, we're not going to, we're probably not going to fly. Um, and then business as usual. I was going to make him some pulled pork. I had a babysitter for the day, so um, I went to the store. And business as usual until uh, about, I don't know, must have been 10, 10 or 11 a.m. I got a text from a friend in Hawaii who had moved from Virginia Beach. Um, just said, is Wes okay? We heard a 53 went down. Um, obviously, he started shaking. Um, and then she texted back and said, oh, never mind. I, it was a, the Marine version. And I was just on my phone in TJ Maxx, just Googling like crazy, um, but also trying to, um, also trying to, to keep faith. And anytime there was ever something um, bad that would happen with it, with um, any aircraft in the area or really anywhere in the world, Wes would find a way to just text me and write like, I'm okay, okay. Um, because I would just be worried that he was somehow involved or one of his friends was involved. Um, and I, I waited and I waited and I didn't get anything, and I got in my car, and I called him. I called him. I called him. He didn't answer. I called, like, three other guys. I know they're in the squadron. One who always answers. Like, he went to flight school with us. He loves me. He would definitely answer, and he didn't answer. Um, and, I, and I started to freak out. Um... Yeah, I went home, and my uh, neighbor across the street was a um, former um, former commander, uh, 53 Squadron, when they were in Corpus. Um, former commandant, sorry. And so I went over to his house. I thought maybe he knew something. I knocked on the door. Um, 
And he just kind of looked at me with sad eyes. He didn't tell me anything. He said, I don't know anything. I don't know anything. But he clearly already knew. Um, yeah. Yeah, so I went home, and I started to make pulled pork. And then I presume that somebody at some point notified you to get to the hospital. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was hours later. So Barry, the guy who lives across the street, the former um, commandant, his sent his wife over, um, came over, and I had a knife in my hand because I was making pulled pork, and she just took the knife away from me. She said, Nicole, go do something else. I'm going to make pulled pork. Uh, about two hours went by, um, two, maybe, maybe three, I think two. Um, and I got a, a phone call from an unknown number. Um, and it was someone who, who just clearly wasn't supposed to call me, but said, Wes, multiple blunt force trauma, um, extreme burns, get to Norfolk Centera General now. What what happened when you arrived at the hospital? Oh god, it was so bewildering. Like I, I, I walk in and I mean there were there had to be at least twenty or thirty people in military uniforms there. And I'm like I got a random phone call and all of you are already here. Like everyone knows this happened and you didn't call his wife. I, like I walked in and at that point I was like very I was very confused. I didn't. But I, I didn't know what to do, but I also knew that I needed to remain calm and to not freak out if I, could, if I wanted to get to him. I just started sobbing and falling on the floor, started yelling at someone. There was no way, if he was there, I was going to get to see him. So for some reason, I, I don't know, I had the strength to do that. Um, oh, three, um, three guys in military uniforms who I sort of knew were like, we're supposed to go to this floor, you know, come with us. And they walked me up to, I forget what floor, into a room that was catered, um, which was, I was so confused by that. Uh, but just Jimmy John sandwiches on the table and an ice bucket with, with sodas in it, uh, like, some, like a cookie tray. And they were like, sit down, wait here. Um, that, that's it. <laughs> and then left. Um, the door was open and I, I, I know what a chaplain looks like, uh, about a half an hour later, I noticed a couple of chaplains walking down the hallway, um, and just more brass passing. And I really started to get concerned. I, I mean, I already hadn't been told anything. Um, only thanks to the, the person who called me, I wouldn't have been there otherwise. So I figured they were trying to hide something from me. Um, or didn't know how to tell me, or because the Keiko wasn't there, military regs said they couldn't. But that didn't matter to me. All that mattered to me is seeing my husband if he was going to die. Which, frankly, as a human being, I, I think that regardless of the rules, um, you would have that <clears throat> that empathy. Right. Well, definitely. I, I mean, absolutely. Well, did they eventually let you see Wes? Um... <laughs> Well, I had to argue my way to him, but, um, yeah, a hospital administrator, a woman who I forget what her title was, somewhere high up in the hospital, but she, she came into the room and she said, I just want to update you that your husband is going into surgery, so you can't see him right now, uh, but we'll update you as soon as we can. 
And for me, I was like, uh, like everything I'm seeing doesn't line up with what you're saying. So I, I looked at her and I said, God help you if my husband's near me and he dies and I don't get to see him. I said it calmly and I looked her straight in the eyes. Um, and for some reason, she, she said, okay, I'll be right back. Uh, and then she came back. I don't know who she talked to or what permission she got, but um, she said, okay, come with me. I said, I can be calm. I can be composed. I just want to be near him. She said, okay. Um, so, yeah, I mean, he was, like, I don't know, 50 feet from me. He was. I could just walk me down a short hallway into the ICU, and there he was right there that whole time that I was waiting. Wow. Well, can you describe that scene? What was like when you walked in that room? Um, there was definitely a worry in the air. There was tension. Uh, there were about, I don't know, five, six people in there. They had already had the paddles out. Uh, he was wrapped in, in blankets, um, a lot of blankets. His, uh, his, his foot and his hand were wrapped in wrapped in gauze, or his missing foot and his missing fingers wrapped in gauze, and his, half his uh, face was covered in third-degree burns, and he was his eyes were wide open. He was, like, looking right at me, but, but unconscious. Um, and the first thing they said to me was, do you want us to clean him up? No, I don't, I don't need you to clean him up. He's my husband. Like, he's he's just been in a traumatic helicopter crash. Like, uh, So, I, I don't know. So, once I said that, I said, I just want to be near him. Like, can I hold his hand? Can I touch him? Can I kiss him? Um, and they, the doctor, the doctors um, said that I can get a chair and sit next to him. And maybe um, if I talk to him or laid my head on his chest maybe that would help him come back. Um, but, uh, yeah, and when they said that, it obviously worried me, because if I was the only thing that could make him come back, then it seemed like it was already over. Um, um, yeah, I just, I told them all about Wes, I kept saying he's... I know you're doing the best you can, but can you please keep trying? He's an, he's an incredible father. He's an incredible husband. He makes the world a better place. Don't take him from this world. He's such a good person. Um, <laughs> yeah, he hasn't even won the Paralympics yet. He's going to win. Save him. Um, and they tried, and they tried, and they tried. But after, after a little while... Um, when they started you know, sh trying to shine a light in his eyes and there was no response, it just, they could tell it just crushed them to have to give up. Um, they tried, they tried the paddles again, they tried them again, and then the nurse just gently placed her hands on my shoulders and said, we need to come over here now um, and move me to the back of the, back of the room. Um, so, obviously, I knew what was coming next. Yeah. Um, 
It's, it's, it's okay. Um, our, his best friend, the one who introduced us, who's our son's godfather, was in the room with me. Um, and our son's godmother, who's one of my best friends, were, they came in the room at that point. Um, and so as they called it, they were both holding me. I wasn't alone, which is good. Wow. That, that, is, that, that, that is a tragic story. Oh, how about how about we change the perspective a little bit and let's 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 go back in time because in the in the film they talk about how Wes had raised concerns about the helicopter program for years before before this accident. Can you tell us what were some of the things that he said to you about problems with the helicopters? Oh. Um <clears throat> Oh, I mean, a lot of things. Um, when we first got to the squadron in 2010, he he just, he knows that there was like a lack of leadership among the, among the officers. People just didn't really care about being at work. They would never be um, out on the floor with their guys. It was, to go to work was just sort of to show up and then to go home. They weren't invested in their job. And, be, and because of that, um, he felt like there wasn't a lot of oversight uh, of the enlisted guys, and the chiefs were sort of controlling, controlling the the officers or control controlling everything because the officers weren't there and weren't present. Um, so he just felt like the community was um, unambitious and just stagnant, and he really didn't like that feeling. That was when he was in tactics in 2012. Um, he took over as division officer in charge of maintenance. And that's when he started to notice some concrete things that he would bring, bring home to me and say, Hey, Nicole, I need to talk about this. I got to get this off my chest. Um, that's when he began to realize the depth of the problems. Um, those problems were arranged from, um, he, he noticed that maintenance protocols were being skipped, um, skipped or not done per the pub done by, Hey, this is how we've done it for a really long time. I know it's not per the pub, but that's how so and so did it, and that's how so and so did it. We're doing it that way for five years. Like that's the way we're going to do it. Um, so that culture uh, in, the, in in the maintenance department really bothered him. Um, he he felt like the helicopters weren't getting the care that they needed. Um, another related issue to that is that because replacement parts were scarce. Uh, due to the fact that they were supposed to retire the helicopter, and so military contractors stopped making replacement parts because they didn't think that they were going to get purchased. Um, people were beginning to, to, to cannibalize parts um, off, off the other birds, off something they call hangar queens, basically a couple helicopters that were in such disrepair they're not going to fly anyways, so um, they're just going to go can the parts and, and not keep a proper record of it, um, go put it on the bird that needs it. That really bothered him, um, because then you're not tracking a part. You don't know how many flight hours it actually has on that part, and then the information in the system is not going to give a clear picture of of how old and how worn that particular part is, which clearly can you know ha- has the potential to uh, for for a very dangerous situation. Um, <clears throat> and then he also just didn't like that 
he never got to fly. Like he would go to he would go to work. He'd be like I like I'm gonna use all of my qualifications because I don't have any flight hours. Every time I get in the cockpit, I sit there and we have to troubleshoot for five hours and then we cancel a flight. He just didn't understand why the problem continued and continued and continued with no fix. And so he wrote letters. He went to to speak to you know his CEO, anyone he could, up and down the chain. Even our neighbor Barry was like, "Hey, do you? Hey, this is the situation in the squadron. Can you help me with this? Who do I talk to?" Um, and it was just sort of glossed over and rejected by everyone that he went to. So he said, "Well, we'll just you know, I'm going to keep my own records. Uh, I can't do anything about it now. No one's going to listen. So I'm just going to I'm going to be the one on the floor. I'm going to be the one who's there at 4 a.m. when these guys are taking shortcuts. I'm going to be there and I'm going to be watching. I'm going to write it down." Because someone's got someone's gonna get hurt or someone's gonna die. Well, what was the general response he would get from his chain of, chain of command as he was asking these questions or and raising these issues? Uh, you don't see the big picture. We're working on it. Um, you know, a more direct response was obviously about the um, well, not obviously uh, about buying spare parts uh, from Japan. Um, because they were scrapping all their 53s, and so the the next plan uh, for the for the squadron was going to be to um, have have an inventory of parts that we bought from Japan. But mostly, the, the response was, "You don't see the big picture, Wes. Um, you're not in a position of leadership. It's going to be okay." But we we do need like these little things, you know, the sign off sheets and all. You do need to track that. People need to be doing those correctly. People can't be falsifying their maintenance records. Um, so yes, please keep an eye on that. But in terms of the big picture problem or the desire to take any action or, or really take the problem to heart, uh, was non-existent. Okay. So let's, let's switch gears now back to the documentary. You, uh, so at some point you were approached by Zach and Jason from Berkeley about doing a film project, about doing a documentary about Wes's case. Can you tell us how that all unfolded from, from your perspective? Yes. Well, Mike Hickson, so Mike Hicksonbaugh reached out to me and he said, Hey, we're, you know, we may you know, do you have, have this partnership. Um, are you willing to, are you willing to speak? Um, are you willing to speak to them? So I met Zach, I met uh, Jason first. Sorry, Mike Hicksonbaugh, who who started writing all the articles uh, in the Virginia Pilot. Um, he's the first reporter I called a, a couple months after the crash. I, I worked with him for a couple of years. He knew Jason Palladino, um, and he said, "Hey, like I'm going to vouch for this guy. Um, he is the the friend of Brian Collins, who's one of the the air crewmen who who died in the crash as well." And he said he's also a reporter. He really wants to talk to you. Um, they've got some resources, and they want to investigate the project. Go meet him. So I did in person. Um, and, I, yeah, I, I agreed with Mike. And then he introduced me. He said, well, hey, will, will you talk to um, you know, one of our investigative journalists, his name's Zach. He wants to talk to you. He may want to approach the project. Um, and then that's how we all got connected. Okay. Well, that brings up an even more important point. So you were the first one to reach out to the press. So what, what, what prompted you? What made you want to reach out and speak out publicly about Wes's case? I just want to accomplish 
what West wanted to accomplish in his life, right? He's, he doesn't have a voice anymore. He can't speak, but he, he was speaking up for what's, what was wrong while he was alive. And then unfortunately he was killed by that problem. So I don't know. I, I, that's, I want to, it's how I love my husband. It's how I grieve my husband. And it's how I keep other women from you know, having to, having their husband die and having to deal with everything that comes with that. Um, so I just, I don't know. I want, I want change to happen. I, I believe that he was, I believe that Wes was right. And I believe that his concern was valid. Um, and anything that I can participate in that will get the truth out there that will help people, will make people listen to the, how dire the situation is, I, I want to do. Um, I just want to accomplish what, what he was trying so hard to accomplish. Okay. Well, for all of you out in podcast land, obviously Nicole Van Dorn is an excellent spokesperson for her husband and for the issues that he tried to raise. But of course, a documentary could not be made without the documentary crew. So now we'll turn to the interview that I conducted with Zach, the film's executive producer. And the first question that I posed to him was, what was it about the Van Dorn case that made this such a good subject for a full-length documentary? The, the story came into our office at the investigative reporting program through uh, my associate producer, Jason Palladino. Uh, Jason was a graduate student at the UC Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism at the time, and our office, uh, this small newsroom we call the Investigative Reporting Program, is technically a part of the journalism school where we're doing uh, professional projects and, and getting students into the mix on, on research and helping them with stories of their own. And Jason happened to know uh, an air crewman who died on that helicopter crash that we went on to explore in the film. Uh, and he opened up a collaboration with Mike Hixenbaugh, a reporter at the Virginian Pilot. Um, and they were doing some work together. Um, helped We helped get a story on NBC News in 2015. Um, and we're both uh, uh, part of our postgraduate fellowship program um, beginning in fall 2015. And once they were both... Um, involved with the investigative reporting program and that way um, I had I started to get into conversations with them about what what would a film about this material look like um, is there a film to be made here or is this better off as a newspaper story or a magazine story and so on um, and it, it just so happened I was at a time where I was looking for a, a new project to dive into. Um, I was enjoying my conversations with them, was intrigued about the possibilities of using this helicopter crash to explore larger um, larger questions about the military and about the Department of Defense. How did this story evolve for you as you got deeper and deeper into the investigation? Yeah, I think it, it works on it works on a couple levels and that's why I was really really fortunate to have the team that I, that I had working on it. Um, you know, I, I was somebody who happened to, um, 
be focused on on some of those those big picture questions because they were gonna they were gonna help the film go on its trajectory, right? Um, to to add up to um, and have these larger takeaways that it has. Um, Mike Hicksonbaugh was <clears throat> on the ground in Virginia um, in Norfolk meeting people. He had the easiest access to um, folks who were in the Navy. Um, what um, and and an outlet where we could we could publish stories um, in in the meantime intermittent stories of you know we we get a document that we're not supposed to have and and report on that or um, you know he can he can chase down um, aspects of squadron culture to make sure they're not just rumor and then here in in Berkeley working with me Jason. Uh, the associate producer was uh, very focused on on records and uh, number crunching and um, checking checking the the court files for for bits of litigation that are going on around these helicopters and and some of those um, things were were instrumental in in storytelling um, chasing down visual materials you know there's um, uh, surveillance video um, footage of a helicopter crash in Hawaii that we weren't supposed to have. Um, you know, that there, there was a lot of resistance to us, to us getting that. Um, and you, you take, you take these, these efforts that, you know, the three of us and then, and then, you know, our bosses and advisors um, helping us um, get the story to take shape. You know, when, when all that's firing on all cylinders, it's a, it's a lot of fun. Um, you can overcome tremendous challenges and tell really impactful stories. So can you walk the audience through the facts that you were able to uncover during the course of the investigation? And, and what were some of the conclusions that you were able to draw from them? Yeah, so while we had our our team hard at work on this, Mike working sort of the, the human sources in Virginia, um, Jason searching over records and, and me exploring some of the big pic picture questions about where this, what this all means and where does this all lead. Um, we had a number of conversations that, that with people who would say, I've seen this over and over again over the decades. Uh, this is entirely um, predictable. Um, maintenance, training, um, uh, spare parts, uh, these, these ordinary things um, are seldom the priority um, when it comes to the defense budget and the, um, the priority is buying new glitzy weapons um, that serve the interest of uh, elected officials, defense contractors, and, and, you know, military brass who go on to work for these companies in, in many cases. Um, and so that, that idea provided the, the framework. Um, and as we, as we talked to people who worked on this helicopter, they would tell us, we never had spare parts. Our flying hours were down. Uh, we're under tremendous pressure to keep up appearances and get the job done one way or another. 
Um, and, and then when you, you sort of take that, that human experience, then compare that to court records and, and, and find things that when it comes to the kind of wiring on this helicopter, which is, um, uh, the, the helicopter crash began with a chafed, chafing wires and, and, and fuel tubes and a, a zip tie that was digging into both of them. Um, the kind of wiring on these helicopters had been a known problem for decades. Um, so you add up all these different things and, and realize that this, this thesis of the new always wins out over the old um, and, and the priority is to, is to, to share in the, the wealth of the new weapons um, and, and all their promise. It, it, all, all that stuff rolls downhill to the point where um, those at the, at the pointy end of the spear, as it was put to us in, in the film, are, are never the winners. And, and in reality, the thing that's most frustrating is they should be the priority all along. It's certainly hard to argue with that. Well, that's it for this time. If you're interested to find out how you can see the film, you can check out its website, www.vandornmovie.com. As always, you can go to our website for more links about this at pogo.org Strauss. There you can also learn about our other investigations and efforts to make the military more ethical and effective at a significantly lower cost. Please click like on our Facebook page at the Project on Government Oversight. You can follow us on Twitter at at Dan underscore Grazier and at Strauss Reform. In order to preserve our independence, Pogo does not knowingly accept contributions from anyone who stands to benefit financially from our work. If you would like to get involved and help Pogo and the Center for Defense Information's work promoting an effective, open, and affordable government, please consider making a donation. Just click on the red donation icon at the top of our homepage. I'm Dan Grazier, the Jack Shanahan Military Fellow here at the Center for Defense Information at POGO. Please stay tuned as we will continue to help you navigate the Pentagon Labyrinth. <laughs>